Again, as I always say, this is an expository preaching church. We are in the book of Ephesians, and slowly but steadily we're getting there. Well, soon we'll be done with chapter 5 and chapter 6, and we'll be done with the book of Ephesians. As I'm thinking through what I'm going to do next, if you have any feedback for me, let me know. I'm leaning towards an Old Testament book, a minor prophet, uh, but I'm not announcing that yet. Uh, so let me know. We still have a, some Sundays to go as we work through this. We are in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. As it's an expository preaching church, we do nothing but read the text explain the text, and apply the text. That's as simple as we get. So you really, you really need a Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, squeeze to someone sitting right next to you so you can share the Bible with them as we go through Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Queen Elizabeth reigned England, this is the 66th year as queen. And there's a flag on top of Buckingham Palace. And when the flag is flying, it means that the queen is in residence in the heart of London. The flag is a public statement that the queen is present with the people. What is it in our lives that will make a public statement that the King of Kings, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is in residence on the throne of our lives. How will the world know that Christ lives in our lives? That He's a ruling monarch in our lives? I wonder if those around us would be able to recognize that Christ is in residence in our lives, in the way we live our lives. If he is within us, then he will show on the outside. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We are imitators of God, and we are to walk in love as Christ also has loved us. Joe Stolwell writes, Let's fly the flag of his presence, the flag of his grace, righteousness, and love so that others may see him through us. Here we come to the text, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We have two headings here. Let us imitate God, Verse 1, and let us walk with God. Verse 2, let's look at the first heading, let us imitate God. And verse 1 reads again, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. How can you and I imitate God whom we cannot see? God is spirit. He cannot be seen. The Bible says in uh, Exodus chapter 33, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But although we cannot see God, God has revealed himself to us through Christ and through his word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, And long times ago, God spoke to our fathers, to our prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul here says in verse 1, he says, Therefore be imitators of God. The verb be is a present imperative. And you know when it's a present imperative, it's a command, and it's a present tense, that means it's a continual command. A continual command to imitate. The word imitate is from the Greek word mimetai, from which we get our English word mimic. Now we all remember a mimic is someone who mimics gestures and actions. 
Remember when you were in the kindergarten days and you were given a pencil and a cursive writing book and you would mimic the characters carefully, each and every alphabet through it. You trace through the alphabet. You were trying to mimic the letters. In the same way, we are to mimic God. We are to imitate God. God's action, God's attitudes, God's ways. Imitate the, the communicable attributes of God. His righteousness, His justice, His mercy, His love. We are to be imitators of God in our lives, our thinking, our conduct, our behavior, our practice. In other words, we don't just talk the talk. We walk the walk. We are not talking about perfection here. But we are talking about imitation as a lifestyle or as a way of life. You're letting your actions speak louder. You're, you're letting your, your actions speak louder than your words. Peter writes in First Peter chapter 1. Verses 15 and 16, it says, But he who called you is holy, be holy as I am holy. We are to be like God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Be imitators of Christ, even as I am of Christ. We are to imitate God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we read, Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not appear what we will be, but we do know when He comes, we will be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. As we continually imitate Christ, one day we shall be like Him. And that's the primary pursuit of every believer, to be like God, to be like Christ, day by day, Moment by moment. You and I must realize as we think about being imitators of God that there is no way we can imitate God or mimic God even though He has revealed Himself to us through Christ and through His Word. Why? Because Adam's sin back in the Garden of Eden has alienated or separated us from God. We are filled with anger, we are filled with pride, we are filled with malice, we are filled with all kinds of evil. The Bible states that we are born in our sin and a sin from our mother's womb. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So we are spiritually dead people and as spiritually dead people we cannot be imitators of God. Verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. If you find children, place your finger there on the word children. We're going to look at the word children there. We are imitators because we are children of God. How do we become a children of God? How do we become a child of God? John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, we read, But for all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we read, That blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the only way we can be born again is through God the Father. The only way we can belong to God is by being adopted into His kingdom, and the way we are adopted into His kingdom is by being born again. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So how do you become born again? Yes, you need to be born again, and God is the one who does the regeneration. How do you become born again? You need to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to come to a point where you recognize that Christ died on the cross for your sins. And as you recognize that Christ died on the cross for your sins, you need to believe the gospel. 
And the gospel is this, as simple as it gets. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1, 2, and 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the, in accordance to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the gospel. And that's as simple as it gets where you recognize you're a sinner and you need a Savior, that you've sinned against a holy God, that Christ died for your sins. And when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There is nothing you have to do to qualify yourself to come to Christ. You just come to Christ. You're saved by faith and faith alone. Faith in Christ and Christ alone. You need to believe in the simple gospel. Hebrews chapter 7. We read that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And that is what regeneration is all about. That is what salvation is all about. That's how you enter the kingdom of God, by believing in the gospel. And you can only imitate God, as we read here in verse 1, therefore be imitators of God. You can only imitate God after you become his child. If you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, Paul is saying, Blessed be, be, the, be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ. So, it is when we are in Christ that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, being in Christ, we are now holy and blameless. Because that's what verse 4 says. Even as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The reason you're holy and blameless is because you are in Christ. And because you're in Christ, you continue to grow in your practice of holiness as well. Because God continues to sanctify you. Because we are God's children, because we are in Christ, we enjoy the blessings of Christ, and we refrain from living like the world. And we have a desire to live holy lives, blameless lives. You can only see the fruit of being an imitator if you are in Christ. You will see the Holy Spirit working in your life as a result of being in Christ. And you will see an increased desire for holiness. The fruit of salvation that you see here that is being imitators of God is a fruit of salvation that's an increased desire to love Christ more and more. An increased desire to obey Christ more and more. An increased desire to know Christ intimately. An increased desire to study and grow in, the, in God's Word. An increased desire, a hunger for God's Word. An increased desire for prayer and, and to be in fellowship with God's people. All of this are the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, it's a fruit of salvation. It is a result of being in Christ. The fruit of salvation will be seen in your selfless love for others. There will be spiritual growth in your life. You will bear fruit. And this again is a, is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a blessing given to you by the Holy Spirit as a result of being in Christ. So my beloved, it is only by being in Christ can you be an imitator of God. You cannot be an imitator of God if you're not in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, 
verses 8, 9, and 10. It reads, verse 8 reads, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So yes, our coming to faith is by, it's a gift of God. It's God's grace. It's not because of anything you and I do. It's not because you're an imitator of Christ that you come to Christ. You become an imitator of Christ because you have come to Christ Jesus. Now verse 10 goes on to read, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here we see that We are saved unto good works. We are not saved by good works. Because if we were saved by good works, that would be salvation by works. We were saved for good works. Titus chapter 2 verse 14. It reads, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify to himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is what true salvation produces. Good works that we read in verse 10. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. True salvation is not a defective salvation. True salvation is not passive. The Bible says we are God's workmanship. A man saved by God's grace is a holy man. And seeks day by day to walk away from the defilement of sin. Now I'll say, Pastor, does that mean a Christian will never sin? No, it doesn't mean that a Christian will never sin. We know that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if you sin, we have an advocate, the Bible says, with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we will sin, but when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is pleading our case to the Father. But what we see here, that in our sanctification, in our daily life, we will never stall completely. Why? Because God is at work in our lives. Isn't that what we read in Philippians chapter 1? Sorry, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, that God is working at our salvation So let's work at our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is He who works in you. We read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, He who began the good work will finish it under the day of salvation. He will continue to perfect us. So true salvation is given by God, and genuine salvation will not fail to produce good works. It's important for us to understand that. Because otherwise we'll put the horse, the cart before the horse, instead of allowing the horse to drive the cart. We become an imitator of God because we are in Christ. Is that kind of clear? That's what I was trying to take us through all this while, recognizing that you and I can only be imitators of Christ being in Christ. Not only that, if you're truly saved, your salvation will reflect itself in the fruit of which is being an imitator of Christ. Let's keep going. If you look at the phrase there, as beloved children in verse 1, let's look at the word beloved. We are loved by God with a special love. That's what beloved means. First John chapter 3, verse 1, we read, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We are beloved children. Trying to think about being uh, or understanding what beloved means. As a dad, uh, I remember the time when a long time ago, my boys are through college right now, but long time ago when they were little, little young ones, they were just two years apart, a little less than two years apart. I would come home from work and, and no matter how exhausted and how tired I was, I would have the two boys right there with their smiling, beaming faces. One of them would jump onto me and the other one literally would drag onto my legs. They were ready to play with me. 
No matter how exhausted I was, no matter how sweaty I was, it didn't matter to them. All that they wanted to do was to be in the arms of the beloved dad. Now, if if we can understand human relationship and, and being beloved, how much more does our Heavenly Father love us? That He cares for us. That He provides for us. And we are His children. By the way, we are His beloved children just because you are in Christ. You know, the Bible uses the word beloved with Christ. Christ is God's beloved. And the fact that we are in Christ makes us God's beloved. Isn't that amazing? It means we are loved by God. And so let's read that verse again. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Again, reaffirming the fact that we are to imitate our Heavenly Father as His beloved children. A question that arises, how can you imitate someone you do not know? Well, how do you know someone? And you would say, by spending time with that person. How do you know God? Well, spending time with God, knowing about God. What does he look like? And where do you see what does he look like? Well, you just have to look into God's word. Because as you study God's word, you understand who God is. You have a biblical understanding of God. You don't have to look at the culture. You don't have to hear from people. You just have to look into God's word. And as... You are directed into God's Word. You will now spend time in God's Word. And as you spend time in God's Word, you will know more and more about God. And as you know more and more about God, you will also commune with God in prayer. This is why the Word of God and and spending time in prayer are graces that allow us to know God intimately and fully well. My question to you, beloved, is do you know God? Are you spending time with Him? Are you spending time in God's Word? Now, I know that many of us read God's Word. It's one thing to read God's Word. It's another thing to meditate on God's Word, which may entail just picking up one verse, maybe two, and just allowing it, chewing on it, meditating on it, just like a cow ruminating on its cud. Anyone witness that? I've seen a lot of those cows. They'll just lay idle. And all that they're doing is moving their jaws. But what they're doing is they're doing that ruminating process. They're chewing on what they've already eaten. And that's what we need to be doing as Christians. We need to be meditating on God's word. Because at the end of the day, when someone comes to you, you are able to say, you know, brother, I read this word. And it, it, this is what I, the Lord has been speaking to me through God's word. And you're able to minister to others with God's word. As opposed to someone comes to you at the end of the day and say, what did you read? Uh, I don't know. I know I read my Bible. There's a difference between reading and meditating on God's Word. And as you meditate on God's Word, you get to know God more intimately. Spending time with Him in prayer. I know that some of us shoot these arrow prayers to God. Like you're in need and immediately you pray. I know that when I come to church and I see you, beloved members, and you talk to me, there are times I stand with you and I pray with you. But there's another concept where you spend time with God one-on-one, alone with God in prayer, in your privacy, in your, in your closet, wherever that is. I remember having a friend of mine while we were in seminary. He had a small home and, and a lot of kids in the house, and it was very distracting. And he had to spend an hour in prayer because that was one of our exercises in seminary. As we studied in seminary, we were required to pray for one hour a day for a course on prayer, and so what he would do, he, was, he would get into his closet and sit there with the door shut because that's the only place he could find to spend time in prayer. I'm talking about really spending time with God alone. Well, that's how you get to know God, by being in communion with Him. And that's how you can imitate God. Let's move on to verse 2. And here we come to our next heading. 
Let us walk in love. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The word walk there in the Greek is the word peripatio. Again, when you think about this verb, it's a present imperative. Now you probably, by now, when you hear the word present imperative, it's not new for you. Those who have been attending this church for a long time, you understand when it's present, present imperative, first of all, it's a command. And when you see the present tense, it means what? It's a continual command. That means you've got to continually walk. It's a command. You've got to be obedient. It means to walk, to regulate one's life, to conduct one's life. Now again, when you say walk in love, it's not a command to follow through on your own strength. It's not like going into the gymnasium and saying, well, I'm going to do it on my own strength. It, it is not. You cannot just say to yourselves, well, I'm going to walk in love. It has to be supernaturally enabled. The Holy Spirit of God has to enable you to continually walk in love. Now, what does this walk in love look like? Well, it means you're imitating God and you're walking in love. What is love? God is love. Love is not God. God is love. And says, as his children, we ought to characterize our lives with that kind of love. So love is the test. So in order to understand love, we got to look to Christ. Christ is a supreme example of love. And so as Christ loved us, we must love. That's what it says there. Walk in love as Christ loved us in verse 2. That's where we understand true love. Now love in our culture is completely disoriented. And you know that. It's all mixed up. It's kind of that warm, fuzzy feeling. And feelings come and go, right? Once your feeling is lost, your love is gone. A love in our culture is some kind of sentimental notion. It's kind of a Hollywood kind of love. This is why you hear couples making statements like this. I don't love him anymore. I don't love her anymore. I don't have feelings for him anymore. I don't have feelings for her anymore. As if you can fall in and out of love. As if love is like an on-off switch. You switch it on when you want to love and you switch it off when you don't want to love. Biblical love is not an on-off switch. Beloved, biblical love is different. It's not a feeling, it's an action. This is the love that we see in Christ. Sacrificial love. Biblical love implores us. Biblical love propels us to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of others. This is the love that was demonstrated at Calvary. It was the Father's love for sinful people exemplified by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Verse 2, please come with me to verse 2. Let's walk through that. And walk in love as Christ loved us. Why did Christ love us? What was there in us that caused Christ to love us? I mean, was there something in us that motivated him to love us? You need to understand who you are. Because when you understand who you are, then you get a good picture of the love of Christ. It's like going up, uh, remember this, you probably, some of you do, you shouldn't be forgetting this. You know, when you were shopping around for your wedding ring, the kind of ring that you gave as you proposed your wife, yeah, I see that. 
And as you walk around, you, you go to the jeweler and, and, and you find the sh- store and, and you go there and he, he takes out all these rings and he places it against this dark velvety cloth, right? And it's against that you see the, the diamond sparkle. It's the same way. You truly want to understand the love of Christ, you need to put it against the dark background of you, who you are as a person. And I call it dark background because the Bible does say that very clearly, very explicitly in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. It says, For while we were still weak, so we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, So we were ungodly. And not only ungodly, but God chose His love for us in that while we were still sinners. So we were weak, we were ungodly, and we were sinners. Pretty dark background. Now, if that were not enough, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, makes it even more explicit. Romans chapter 3, and I'm not going to read the entire passage for you, but it is written, There is none righteous. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who fears God, verse 18. So this is who we are. And why should God love someone like this? But this is the love of Christ, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There was nothing in us to attract Him to us. We were not anyway attractive objects to be loved. We were ugly. We were foul. We were hateful. We were hating one another. I mean, this is the kind of people God loved. Let's keep going. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us. And, let's look at the next phrase there. And gave himself up. He loved us and he gave himself up. He did not just give up his possessions. He gave himself. And and if you really want to understand what that looks like, the best place to go in the scriptures, and you're probably thinking through this right now, some of you, you know where I'm going with this. It's going to be Philippians chapter 2. If you turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, it it says in in verses 5 through 8, this is what Christ gave up. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, says did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It says, verse 7, emptied himself. He gave up his prerogatives to be divine, his deity. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man. God Becoming man. That's what he gave up. He made himself of no reputation. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we read that though you was rich, yet, listen beloved, though you was rich, rich yet for your sake, he became poor. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. He humbled himself. He took on human nature. He became man. Most of all, he gave himself. Now, he did not do it under compulsion. The Bible says in many places, like John chapter 10 and others, that I lay down my life for my sheep. It says, no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. He did not just do it because he had to. He did it out of love, voluntarily. Eagerly. That's Christ's love for us. Keep going. Because I want to show you something else. 
Go back to Ephesians chapter 5, please. Verse 2. It says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Do you see that preposition for? F-O-R. That shows that Christ died in place of us. He died instead of us. He died in our place. This is where we get the doctrine of substitution. He died in our place. He died as a substitute for our sins. Substitutionary atonement. This is biblical love, my beloved. And what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us? And Paul says that in a, in a classic statement in Ephesians chapter 5. And, and since you're already in Ephesians chapter 5, just turn a page down. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Christ died for the church. In the same way, Paul says, husbands, do what? Love your wives. And gave himself up for her. Do you see the same verbiage? Gave himself up for her. So husbands were to do what? Give himself up for her. Now, it's easy to say, well, if someone comes and, you know, is trying to point a gun at me, I'm just going to jump in front of her. Oh, yeah, that, that may not happen. But what will definitely happen is your wife may be ill and she may be tired. And it is your duty to care for her. It may be you have to go to work at, at 6 in the morning, and the baby is crying at 3 in the morning. And you don't just go to bed at night and say, Oh, I'm just let the baby cry. Let, let my wife wake up and do the things for the baby. I have to work the entire day. You get up at 3 in the morning, and you take care of the baby, even though you have to go to work at 6 in the morning. That, my beloved, is sacrificial love. Dr. Barnhouse was once counseling a couple. And they were having marital difficulties. The husband spoke in frustration at one point saying, I don't understand it. I've given you anything a woman would want. I, I have given you a nice house. I've given you a car. I've given you all the clothes you can wear. I've given you... And the list went on and on. At last, the man ended his conversation and his wife replied sadly, Yes, John, that much is true. You've given me everything but yourself. And this, my beloved, is what Christ did. He gave himself for us. And that is how we are to love one another. Have you given yourself up for other people? Maybe you're afraid that people will take advantage of you. Maybe, maybe you're selfish. And you want to keep yourselves for yourself. Maybe you just want to give yourself for others when it's convenient for you. And you have some free time in your hand. Maybe you're not giving yourself to others because you're afraid that you would get hurt or disappointed or taken for granted. Beloved, this is not how God in Christ gave himself for us. Would you please come back to Ephesians chapter 5 and let's keep going. It's good stuff coming up. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2. Let me read that again. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Let's look at the next phrase. A fragrant offering. A fragrant offering. An offering is something that was given or presented 
by one person to another person. In this case here, the offering was done by Christ to God. This offering is described as a fragrant offering, meaning sweet-smelling offering. It was acceptable to God. God was pleased. In fact, very pleased with this offering. God was so satisfied with what was done. Christ's sacrifice, Christ's offering, perfectly satisfied God. It was a fragrant offering. A well-pleasing offering. The next word I want to look at is the word sacrifice. A sacrifice was something offered to God in the Old Testament. A perfect animal without any blemish was taken. The high priest would place his hands upon the head of the animal, symbolically transferring the sins of the people to the animal. The animal was then slain, the blood poured out, collected in a bowl, and the, the, the blood was taken in to the Holy of the Holies and sprinkled on the Ark of the Testimony. The, the animal that was slain was then placed on the altar in the outer court and burned. And as the smoke ascended up into heaven, God was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice. And this is exactly, my beloved, that happened on the cross. When Christ died on the cross and he cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. God from heaven looked down upon his begotten son, having become sin for the sins of the world, and that it was a perfect offering, that he looked down and he said, I am satisfied. The price paid to a holy God was the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, that you are not ransomed from uh, perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ died for your sins. He was slain on the cross. He shed his blood on your cross to satisfy the holy God, the wrath of God. This, my beloved, is biblical love. Having looked at biblical love, let me give you some practical ways you can walk in love. First, you can walk in love by forgiving others. I believe that's exactly what the children's church are doing today. I know this because somebody who's teaching in the children's church asked me a question last week related to this. You know, it's only by knowing that we are forgiven can we forgive others. When Christ forgave us, He did not merely overlook our sin, He deals with it fully and completely on the cross. That we can read in Psalm 103, He says, As far as the east is from the west, so far... Have I removed your transgressions from you? Now, you know north and south. You can go to the North Pole and South Pole. But where is east and where is west? I mean, when do you get to east and when do you get to west? The more you go round and round, you just go on and on infinitely. You can never get to east and never get to west, right? True? And the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far I've removed your transgressions from you. When you recognize and understand what you've been forgiven of, my beloved, you are able to love much. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 reads, Love covers all sins. The depth of your love is indicated by how much you forgive others. Beloved, let me ask you a question. As you stand before God today, as you prepare your hearts to, to partake in this feast that is spread out for us this morning, are you holding a grudge against someone? Are you? Christ died and paid the penalty for whatever wrong you have against anyone. 
So why hold that grudge against that person? You know, 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 through 11 says, No one born of God keeps on sinning. And then he goes on to say, it says, By this it is evident, you are children of God, who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's a test. It's a fruit of our salvation. It's an evidence of our salvation. James Montgomery Boyce writes, If you are not forgiving in our love, we really do not know the extent of God's forgiveness of us. And when we see ourselves as forgiven sinners, then you and I will be able to imitate God by forgiving others freely. So you can walk in love by forgiving others. Second, you can walk in love by your unfailing love. Your unfailing love. Christ's love for us was not a kind of love given to us because at one point in time he felt good about it. Christ was committed to do the will of the Father. I mean, if Christ's love was feelings-oriented, think about this, if it was feelings-oriented, at one point in time, he probably felt good, and so he went to the cross. What would have happened if he did not feel good? You and I would never have atonement today. So what you see is Christ's unfailing love. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which you hear in most marriages, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 says, Love never ends. That means you stay committed in love, irrespective of your feelings. For anyone you're mandated to love, you stay in love, whether you feel it like, feel like or not. You remain in love no matter what. Husbands, love your wives even when they disappoint you. Wives, Love your husbands even though they are not the same person you dated. You can walk in love by your unfailing love. You can walk in love by abounding in love. That's the third thing. The more years you become a Christian or you've been a Christian, the more you should have grown in your love. That's what we read in First Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 and Philippians chapter 1 verse 9 that your love may abound more and more. That means you grow in love more and more. You can never say you have arrived. You will never arrive at loving someone. You will only arrive when you see Christ face to face. That's when you will be transformed into the image of His glory. But until then, you can grow more and more in your love. you got to abound in your love daily. And lastly, walk in love by committing to seek the good of the one you love. I'll repeat that. Walk in love by committing to seek the good of the one you love. Why should you seek the good of the one you love? Ephesians chapter 5 verse 27 states, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here, in the context of marriage, the, 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 the way you do this, and John McCarter writes this, if you have a study Bible, he's, he's put it in his notes there. It says, divine love seeks to completely cleanse those who are loved from every form of sin and evil. That means a Christian husband should not be able to bear the thought of anything sinful in the life of his wife that displeases God. The desire of the husband is that she would grow to be more and more like Christ. It's the same thing you can apply to your children. You know, you love your children. When you see your children going the wrong path, you want to offer that correction. You want to lead them in the right path. You want to help them in their sanctification. The Word of God helps us in our sanctification every day. That means biblical love must exhort, biblical love must correct, biblical love must impose consequences for sinful behavior. 
And I can guarantee you that when you come alongside a sinning believer and show them their sin, you will be tagged as unloving and ungracious. Beloved, is it unloving to exhort and correct someone in their sin so that they'll become more and more like Christ? Or is it unloving to let them live in their sin? It's unloving to let them live in their sin. Biblical definition of love demands that we be committed to seeking the good of the one you love. So let us walk in love. How do you do that? Look to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ on the cross. He gave himself without restriction. And so you can give yourself to others without restriction. He forgave your sins on the cross. So you can forgive the sins of others. He was committed in his love for you. And he still remains committed in his love for you. His love never changes. Even though we sin today as a believer, he loves us. His love is not based on our performance. His love is based on the fact that he died on the cross for our sins. And we put our trust in him. And we have the righteousness of Christ. That's the love that you have. A love marvelous. A love amazing. A love so divine. And as the hymn writer says, it demands my soul. Gracious Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this great sacrifice. Thank you for saving us. And Father, this morning as we look up to the cross, thank you for the forgiveness that you've given us. That we stand not because of our righteousness, not because of our performance, not because of any brownie points that we have accomplished on our own, but because of the righteousness of our Savior that is been imputed to us. And so we can now read Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And say there is now no condemnation to them for in Christ Jesus. We thank you for this feast that you prepared for us. And in response, Lord, we want to say we love you with all our heart, soul, and mind. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.